Hey, this is Kate. Welcome to Two Pastors. Take a walk and make a podcast. This is Yolanda, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we're preaching. So what is astonishing you? Listen, I was called upon to preach at Bethpage United Church this past Sunday. Bethpage United is a historically African-American church within our presbytery. And uh, it's been a long time. It's been years since I have preached uh, in an historically African-American um, congregation. And it was a good time. Yeah. <laughs> it was yeah. a really good time. And um, sometimes you forget the cost of being in multi-ethnic congregations. And I believe in multi-ethnic churches. I believe God calls those churches into being as a witness to the gospel, mm -hmm. um, as a witness to um, barriers being torn down in Christ and a new humanity being created in Christ. So I believe multi-ethnic churches are the will of the Lord. And there is a witness for, by, historically black churches in this country. Mm -hmm. And um, so one of the things, you just forget things. So um, in that context, nobody calls you by your last, or your first name. Mm -hmm. Like it, you are reverend, right? Mm -hmm. um, also in a black church, probably regardless of denomination, when you sit in the pulpit chair, there's always going to be water. There's always going to be a bowl of candy. It's just, it's those kind of things that made me feel like it was Thanksgiving at my mother's house. Mm -hmm. It was warm. It was comfortable. It was welcoming. Oh, no. Here's the real deal. It just hit me. Wow. I haven't thought about this. Um, it just hit me. In that context... All my defenses are down. Mm -hmm. There's no need for me to have to filter mm -hmm. how I listen or filter what I say. I can just be, I can just um, not worry about navigating the complex cultural ethnic issues that we have in this country and in the church. And so um, it was a relaxing um, joyful, good time. They are an enthusiastic, energetic, multi-generational uh, congregation. And so it, it was just a good time. So I, I'm just astonished by uh, being in that context. And I need to listen to the sermon because I don't think it was very good, but that's all right. The worship was fantastic. Mm -hmm. No, that's right. Really, I mean, that's really great. It is something, um, like I do feel like part of following Jesus is like, going out and coming in, right? Like, and, and it is, um, you know, there's, it's a sacred gift to have a place that is home and that is safe. And a lot of people never have that. And a lot of people never have a spiritual home that is safe. And so, it, you know, there's nothing, I mean, there's something really good about that. And I think it's meant to deepen us and fill us so that we can be sent out, right? So that... Yes, because I share with you my anxiety about... Um, well, I'll just be frank. It's like, like, oh, uh, you're going to share this. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you... When you are an African-American 
in a multi-ethnic, majority white context, you work hard to communicate and to speak other people's language and to enter into other people's culture for the sake of communicating and being in relationship. And so you can, you can be there so long that you start to worry if you have forgotten how to speak your native tongue mm -hmm. or if you go back to your native land, will you have such an accent that people give you the side eye and wonder if you're still one of us, right? And so there was a bit of anxiety that I had that, you know, will I be black enough? Mm -hmm. um, because I have been navigating this multi-ethnic context for so long and, oh yeah, it was all good. <laughs> so, I mean, I wonder if there's just a, I, I think it's interesting to talk about in the context of this um, podcast and particularly how often we talk about, you know, multi-ethnic communities and how they both are sort of a return to the beginning and our final destination and how we're forerunners. And so just sort of naming some of the things that are complicated about them and how if you're in a multi-ethnic community, then by definition, you have multiple ethnicities of people, people from different cultures having the same experience, but, but also a very different experiences depending on what they bring to the table and what's happened in the past. And I think so for, for you, I feel like white people get in trouble a lot <laughs> because um, you become aware through proximity that um, black people and specifically black Americans talk to one another differently than they talk to white people. Right. And so there's a dialect um, the scholars now call it AAVE, which is African-American vernacular English, right? Mm -hmm. So there's just a, I mean, and I think, you know, there's a shibboleth, there's a mother tongue, there's a way that you express, you know, uh, in, I mean, I think in all cultures, but like I have the most proximity to black culture. So like, you know, just with a certain, you know, there's, I mean, I think like, um, often with a, a, so much creativity, so much rhythm, so much musicality, and it's just kind of a lot of um, subtext that is no longer sub, right? Like you, you say the things. And so like one of the most common um, examples is the way that people within the African-American community have reclaimed the N-word, right? Mm -hmm. So to say that this word has been used as um, really like, verbal assault but within our community um we can reclaim it as a term of endearment and connection and honor and it's very subversive and so i think as a white person when you are i am part of the majority culture of this country where we live so what is my mother tongue my shibboleth is what the dominant culture says is the right way and the correct way, right? And so um, white people who really sincerely want to be in multi-ethnic spaces and want authentic relationships and want these um, cross-racial friendships, often we will see 
the way some of our black friends talk to each other and say like, oh, well, we have a real relationship and I have intimacy <laughs> with this person and I have an authentic relationship with them. And so one way I can show that I'm, um, you know, that I fully support you and your blackness is to adopt that same language, right? So then I'm trying to show you that like, I've been listening, that I'm aware, that I um, like, <laughs> that I approve. Um, and I, and that can come from a really pure place. And it, all, it, it can also come from a desire to be accepted. Right. So it can come from a really pure place. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> it's really important to stick, to, to like have conversations to about this, to not do it. And, and, and why do we not do it is because it's not authentic as a white person for me to speak as though I have lived experience as a black person, because, um, you know, for me to authentically speak the, the dominant language, the common language, which I think ironically, we then begin to feel is not special. We're like, well, everybody speaks this way. I want to speak the special insider way and be like, no, actually, <laughs> this is my dialect. This is the way I naturally talk. This is the way I was taught to talk in my home. I haven't had to have coded expressions of acceptance. I haven't had to reclaim words that are common in the culture, but that speak disrespect and, um, of my humanity. And so I just think it's really important to understand, like, I, I get it. Believe me, I get it. You want to say, this is for me too. Can I be a part of this also, please? And if I can't, then does that mean that there's always going to be a distance? Does that mean we don't have an authentic relationship? That's not what it means. It means honestly being able to say, I'm showing up in my um, real self and I really am a white person and this is really how I talk. And I accept that my black friends are going to talk to each other differently than I can talk to them and that for me to do it would be disrespectful. For me to do it honestly would be like colonizing. It would be saying like, I want that, therefore I get to have it. It belongs to me now. Yes, and another reason it's disrespectful is because there's just a long history of white people wanting black soul or black swagger, but not black struggle and black pain. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so I just think like as we talk about multi-ethnic communities, it's really important for us as white people to have really um, to, for there to be some places to say like what how how am I allowed to show up in these spaces? And and really, I think a lot of times we talk about whiteness not being um, the whiteness, which is really another way of saying white supremacy is not of the Lord and is evil, um, and we want to reject it and dismantle it. But being white is not a sin. It's not a crime against humanity. It's not anything we need to apologize for. And so it's about saying, like, I don't need to be like you or mimic you to be in relationship with you. And I don't need to apologize for um, what is holy and natural in in the way I show up in the world, I don't need to apologize for that. Um, and, and so I, I, you know, I just think it's really helpful, um, to, and, you know, and I think most people, you know, if, if people are writing a thought piece that they'll tend to be really, um, you know, just clear and, and, and they're talking about principles. And so it can get really charged really quickly. I think when you are 
in real life sharing community with someone, you know, I think people are really gracious um, of the mistakes we make with one another. Um, but I also think it's helpful as a white person to just walk into a space having a kind of self-awareness so that you don't always need to be corrected and you just sort of know, like, not everything's for me and and that's okay. Um, so Yeah. I would also add that it is it's disrespectful because um, it it almost seems to suggest that white people have to downshift, right? Mm-hmm. So if you had a white person from France come to the U.S. and they're speaking English with a heavy French accent, it is highly unlikely that an American white person is going to try to connect with them by taking on a French, a French accent. accent, right? Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, I mean, but I think it's, it's really tricky. It's just that you don't see something about our humanity. Mm-hmm. And I think it's just, I mean, humans are distinct, and culture and ethnicity is not bad. I mean, it's a gift from God. And so we're meant to see and celebrate it in one another, not not be- homogenize it. And um, I, I think that's the real difference between a, a, a community that has unity um, is that we're, we're not all the same and yet we know that our differences are um, celebrated and accepted we don't have to blend them away um, and, and I, I think but I mean I do think it is tricky and like my own daughters go to schools where they're um, majority minority schools so my my children are usually one of one or two white kids in their classes and and it's very hard for them because then what is surrounding them um, and what is the dominant culture is um, you know is African American vernacular English or is you know and and we have to really talk about you're allowed like that is how your peers are talking (laughs) and And so in some way it doesn't become their culture but it becomes an influence upon them that becomes authentically them. Right. 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 I mean, it's just so interesting because my middle daughter always says axed instead of asked. Mm-hmm. And so when I was growing up, like, I mean, that's a real distinctive between white American English and black American English. And I was always taught that it was wrong to, to quote, mispronounce the word asked as axed. And it's interesting because now linguistics um, professors have chimed in and said, like, no, actually, if you look at the study of the development of the English language, right. both the pronunciation, the pronunciation asked and the pronunciation axed are equally valid in terms of linguistics. So it's just a cultural signifier. But it's really interesting for me as a parent, because my instinct, whenever I, my husband and I both, whenever we hear her say that, is to correct her. And then we're like, well, I mean, technically it's not wrong, and technically people that she's around say it, and I don't want her to think that people who pronounce the word asked that way are any less intelligent or sophisticated than she is, so if I teach her that that's the wrong, I mean, it's just, it's tricky, it's nuanced. Well, here's the good news. So now she gets to have some sense of what it means to have a double consciousness. Yes. So she has to now begin to navigate when to use this 
and when right. to use that. And I think like I think about this a lot just as a pastor having a community that's very spiritually diverse and having been blessed by having the Lord lead me through different kinds of Christian culture at different stages along my um, journey that there are people in the community that like, I, I will, I will speak to you out of a different part of myself and my experience when I know or have a sense of what you're going to understand. Right. And, and if there's a part of my experience that is authentic for me, but I know that for the person sitting across from me, that, that won't, that won't make sense to them. It won't be accessible to them. So, I mean, I do feel like we, we already do or should as pastors, like have that kind of double consciousness. And I think like the, the simplistic way is to say like, well, that's not being sincere, but I don't, I don't think that I think it's being really thoughtful and intentional about how to best connect and communicate with the person in front of you in a, in a, in a, in a sincere way. So it's not pretending to have had experiences that you haven't had, but it is saying, Hey, this part of my experience, I think is a point of connection for us. And I think I can talk to you using this part of my experience and, and be a blessing and be blessed and other parts stay on the shelf for now. And the wonderful potential about this society that we live in is that we could all potentially be this multi-level Venn diagram of cultural influence, mm -hmm. right? Right. And I think that's the key is the domination and violence done to black Americans in this country is evil and of the enemy. But double consciousness in and of itself, which was developed as a response, is not bad, right? And so I think for, you know, to yes, I think that my daughters are well served even as they imperfectly work it out to understand all the time, they walk into a situation with an awareness of like, who am I? Who is the person across from me? What kinds of experiences are they likely to have had? What kinds of expectations and assumptions do I have? Like, can I not assume that the person sitting across from me sees the world in the same way that I do or, or, is going to have the same reaction that I'm going to have. And when the person across from me um, responds or reacts in a particular way, can I not assume that I know who they are and why they did it? Can I pause for a second and have some curiosity and, you know, go back for clarification? And like that just serves all of us well when we, we sort of have a posture of humble honor and curiosity instead of sort of, you know, dominating through life. And I think it is harder. Like, I think that's why some of, some of us who have been in the majority and have had these, um, advantages that have come, or those theoretical advantages that have come from this broken society, we, we resist awareness and truth because we're like, oh my gosh, it's just going to be so much harder if I can't just assume that everybody knows what to do and assume that I know what everybody's thinking and assume that I know best as how people should show up and what, like it is harder, but it is also healthier and, um, it's, it's better ground for fruit of reconciliation and growth.
So, anyway. so what's astonishing? Do you, you like how I just made your story about me? Well, sorry, <laughs> sorry. I'm glad you were. I'm glad you had an experience of coming home. I'm sorry. I just think it's really interesting. I'm really grateful. <laughs> you know, one of the things I I have to admit that I like about you um, is that you have. You're well. You're probably the most self-aware extrovert that I know. And I, and, and, you know, most of the people I know are extroverts, except for the, you know, woman I'm married to. And extroverts can be very interesting because, you know, like words, right? <laughs> and uh, have thoughts that, you know, need to be shared. Um, and, but I, I, I love it when you, um, when you when you see yourself, it's 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 great. It, it gives me joy. I just think sometimes I want to say it because I know so, I know some people who listen to this podcast, and I know they're thinking it. So I just feel like if I say it, it loses you don't the have sting. To, I like I'm aware. I do think one of my favorite memories is like coming to you at at some point. I can't even remember what it was, but I was in like deep crisis about something, and I asked you a question, and then you answered the question. Well, then I like whatever like. 45 minutes later, I realized, like, I've been talking the whole time. And you were just like, yeah, you're a verbal processor. I knew that. Like, I just just yeah. gave you space. Yeah. Like, I know you didn't. Like, this is what you needed. Like, I mean, just. Was there, there, there was once when we were, one time we were walking and you, you were going through something. And, um, and you posed this question. Like, this is a real problem. This existential crisis I'm having. And, um, yeah, after about 30 minutes, you'd worked it out. And you said to me, thank you for helping me solve my problem. <laughs> I said, I, you realize I didn't do anything. You, you worked it out on your own. <laughs> you, I mean, a, this, like, Which is a easy. safe space. Like, no, your, but your I, yoke is easy. Your burden is light. But I just really appreciate, like, I think sometimes. I see you. What was so gracious is right. And like, see me and are not like annoyed by it. Right. Just being like, oh, I get it. This is how you're wired. It doesn't offend me. It's like culture. Right. right? Yeah. No, I just, yeah, I, I, I'd be different if I could, but I can't. Uh, Anyway. So what is astonishing you? So what is astonishing me um, is we, we've had this, um, a couple small group opportunities for um, the community I serve during Lent. Um, one of them was like an, was an in-person second hour class taught by, um, our friend Kim Kyle, who's just so gifted, um, on the cross. And it was really, um, using a, another resource, but a little bit in tandem with our worship theme on six ways of the cross. So that was lovely. Um, but I, but I wasn't really a part of that one because I get pulled in different directions on Sunday morning, which is fine. But, um, the other was an online, um, a zoom uh, small group for six weeks and um it, it was really lovely so we used um Esau Macaulay the Reverend Esau Macaulay has a um has many books um but I, I think this is his newest book it's this really thin little volume on Lent mm-hmm. um and um it's very um it's very classic it's very simple um, he's not trying to innovate. He's not trying to put his stamp on anything. What what he's trying and very much succeeds to do is to give an on-ramp to um, the meaning of this season and, and the different moments in it and the different practices associated with it and also, you know, help people understand um, the connections through 
through church tradition, through the biblical tradition. Like it's just, it's really lovely. And I think often my, my personal practice during Lent has been like, oh, I'm going to read this person's book about fasting, or I'm going to try this prayer technique, or I'm going to whatever. I'm, I'm trying to like innovate or like have some new understanding or some deeper thing or to go beyond. And, um, it was such a gift, um, to use this, um, resource, which is unapologetically about beginning. Um, and, and then the great gift of the group about, about half the people. And so like four people in this group of eight really, um, had never practiced Lent before, like just had not been part of a church tradition, um, where, where that was a thing. And so it was such a gift to walk through this book and this season with people who, for whom it was new. And, um, and it was interesting because, you know, they, um, would ask questions and, um, I mean, obviously whatever you've been around a while and you're the pastor. And so people are asking questions that you know the answer to, or that you have an opinion about, which I enjoy. (laughs) I know. It's embarrassing, but it's true. Um, but at the end of the session, we, we wrapped it up last night, and I, I had asked folks, like, hey, can you just come to the group, if, if you can, and share kind of the one thing that you are going to take with you or the the one revelation or insight or, that you treasure? Um, and, and so that was really lovely. Um, and side note, I feel like we don't do that enough. Like we, we go through an experience and it's a gift and we receive it and we're grateful, but we don't really take the time to pause and say, what, what am I carrying out of this? Um, but, but one of the women in the, in the class or in the small group said something that was, was a kind of a common refrain which people would sort of, um, preface a question or an insight with almost an apology of like, well, this is new to me, or I haven't been a part of this before, or I, I probably should know this. And, um, and, and so when we were doing the insights at the end. One of the women said like, I, you know, I haven't really had much wisdom to add because this is all new to me. And I was saying like, for me, what was such a gift, um, such a gift was, the the richness of continuing to have a beginner's mind when we walk our faith and i just feel like it's so seductive um this temptation of like oh i i've grown beyond this or oh i know i mean like what my, there's a there's a thing that happens in my family that drives me crazy well i'll say one of my kids names and they'll be like, I know, I know. And then I'm like, oh, really? You know what I'm going to say to you? Well, tell me. And you know, they don't know. Mm. And and it is infuriating to me um, because it's not that they don't know anything. <laughs> it's just that they don't, you know, they don't know as much as they think they know. And And I feel like so often I am like a spiritual teenager, right? Like I'm just so enamored of what, 
I what the Lord has given me and what I have learned the hard way and what that it's just this temptation to be like, oh, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. And and so then you just rob yourself of the gift of coming to a season ready um, to receive. And it was it was I, I, I just think that the height of spiritual maturity is a peaceful acceptance of how little you know and how much you get to learn in not being defensive about that and not um, feeling like you have to posture. And and um, I feel like I'm just maybe, you know, getting to that level of maturity and it's a struggle. And um, I was so grateful for the wisdom of, you know, the folks who, who were in, I mean, for everyone who was in the class, but for particularly the people who are in the class saying like, this is new and I'm, and I'm open to receiving it. And I, and, and it made me realize like, how ignorant is my spiritual posture of like, oh, I know, I don't know anything. And I think the more we see the cross, the more we begin to have the edges of comprehension of the magnitude and weight of the glory and the more aware we ought to become that like we we just can see like the edge of the shadow of that what and it's not that we know nothing and we know enough to trust God and God's goodness but if we really are mature then we are mature enough to be eager not anxious but eager for more um and so just that that gift of you know, really feeling like the Lord spoke to me and led me and gifted me by saying like that kind of a beginner's mind. <laughs> like I, I, I'm calling you back to that. And nobody needs an expert. Nobody needs an expert. Um, and as much as it is our job and our gift to be able to unpack scripture for people, that does not mean we're not experts. We're, we're followers and we're beginners and obviously so so that was what was I was just really grateful and astonished and and also last thing I I do think that there's something about Christianity in America that makes people feel apologetic about being beginners and just how messed up that is that Jesus never made people feel ashamed of being where they were and and how not surprising it is that the church is not growing if if we make church a place that's where it's uncomfortable to to be new to be a beginner um, um, or, or to be received as as a, as a sheep of another flock right that like oh you're not a blank slate but you know so anyway I just it was a gift the whole thing was a gift and I I was really astonished at um, grateful for for that revelation what comes to my mind is the word practice that christianity is something that is practiced and what we have received in western christianity is a lot of what's in your head what you Mm -hmm. think what you Mm -hmm. believe cognitively uh, but not a lot of practice and we forget that it is what we practice 
that shapes us spiritually, not simply what we know or what we think, but what we actually do, the, the holy habits we engage and keep and are disciplined to um, keep mm -hmm. engaging, those shape us over time. I get discouraged, if not irritated, when I see Christians marvel at our Muslim friends during Ramadan and their fasting, mm -hmm. or our Hindu friends and their meditating, because we are blind so often to our own practices, our own traditions. Um, you mentioned um, there's something we've been given uh, in this country, the Christianity in this country, and I, I think it's just it's consumerism. Mm -hmm. So we're it's it's like all consumerism. You 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 get a product, and for a while it gives you a little thrill, and then you want the next thrill, the next thrill, mm -hmm. and you buy the next thing. And so there is this. Um, this impulse in American Christianity is, oh, I had this experience. Well, I need a, a greater experience, a more exciting experience in the next and the next mm -hmm. and the next. And we lose sight of the powerful, deep, transformative um, power of regular, simple, unimpressive Right. habits practices right uh, yeah i think the the thing i mean jesus is saving us and the way that jesus is saving us we, is 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 the simple kinds of practices that are accessible to everyone that we will never outgrow so like prayer um reading scripture meditating being in community serving like these there's no secret sauce but sometimes we're just so desire desiring of some elite path and, and suffering. Right. And I think like one thing that's helpful for me is just recognizing like, Oh, that to, to understand ourselves as a follower, but also as a pilgrim. And so the idea that you're, you're making your journey in stages. And so like, yes, with the benefit of hindsight, I know a little bit of what it is like to be, um, you know, a teenage new believer and I know a little bit of of what it felt like and what was fruitful for me when I was you know in in my 20s and single and I I know a little bit of like what faith practicing my faith looked like when I was a mother of very young children but but I'm a beginner at mothering teenagers and I'm a beginner at what it looks like to faithfully follow Jesus and trust Jesus as I am entering into middle age, maybe not entering, maybe in middle age. And certainly, you know, I think the deep, deep richness and challenge and fruitfulness of um, aging and, and what it means to follow Jesus faithfully, navigating aging, not by denying it, but by seeking the Lord in the continued limits and losses. Um, and I, and I think, you know, that that's a kind of wisdom that we don't want. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I, I, I think that's really, really helpful and just really important for a healthy community to be grounding in that, like, Hey, we're all, we're all on a different journey, but we're, we're, there's two levels here. There's Jesus and the rest of us. Um, so well, what are we thinking about? Well, let's see. This Sunday is 
Resurrection Sunday, so I'm thinking about preaching the resurrection. It is both, um, when it comes to preaching on Easter Sunday, there's both comfort and challenge, right? The, the comfort is that we have been here many times before. Like the resurrection is not new. It is the central proclamation of the church that the one who was crucified is risen from the dead and is Lord of all. It is the central proclamation of the church. And so we do not have to reinvent the wheel as much as marketplace Christianity would want us to put on the greatest show on earth in order to win people to Christ. It is about the message. But the challenge is that we've been here many times before, and the preacher feels as if she or he needs to say something new that people have never heard before because we, I especially, am concerned that um, with familiarity comes a kind of blindness. Mm-hmm. And a, yeah. a kind of what you were just saying about your girls. Uh-huh, uh-huh. I got it. I know that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I already know what you're going to say. So there's no need for you to continue. Already got this. And that is uh, deeply troubling to me. Yeah. We, we've been joking all Lent that the, you know, the, the tag for Easter is like, don't come for the show. Mm. Don't come for the show because there's no show. And I, I think it it's it is challenging as a pastor because... Um, you are a person with an ego. And so people want to have a sort of a certain kind of emotional experience on Easter. And there's nothing bad in that, right? Um, at, at all. Like for people to come to the house of the Lord seeking joy and hope, that that that's just fair. And an encounter with God. Right. But I also think, you know, it is it's easy um to to feel like you're carrying something that you aren't carrying because at the end of the day, it, it's, it is the message message that matters. That's not the messenger. And I, and this is one of the many times that I feel, um, so thankful. And I feel like my ministry has been so formed by the unique experience that I have being married to the person I'm married to. Um, again, doesn't listen to the podcast, never told me I wouldn't allowed to talk about him on podcast. So too bad for you. Um, so my husband is Catholic and grew up in the Catholic church. And so the whole, you know, realm of Protestant Christianity is just, I mean, I guess not strange to him so much now, but, um, and, and I, and it was interesting when we were first together was when I was in seminary and, um, he just was always, he was always astonished at how we pastors. And I mean, at the time I was an associate or an intern or whatever, but would work ourselves up into a frenzy over Christmas and Easter. And he would always be like, what is the matter with you all? These should be the easiest Sundays you have because you already know what to say. Like you know what to say and we've come to hear it. And like he would say, like, I, I really don't like it when the pastor tries to do something like extra cool because it's Easter or, you know, because I don't want you to like add a puppet show to the sermon or like 
intersperse it with song or have a pa- like say the thing like say, say the, the thing. thing like say and the reality the is I mean I think like my we were joking on the way on the walk that like when you do evaluation which you which we wanted to but you know everything I mean, it's, this isn't baseball and every sermon isn't a home run or even a base hit. And, and the truth is, you know, we're called to preach the gospel and the gospel is Christ crucified and not with, um, wisdom or eloquence, lest the cross be emptied of its power. So at the end of the day, what I know for sure is the cross will not be emptied of its power on Easter Sunday. And to say, look, like people don't need an inspiring sermon and people don't need entertainment. Um, what people need is the resurrection and and this the the presence of the Holy Spirit, the the Spirit of God, the power of God that made the resurrection the first fruits and not the last fruits of God's answer to it. Like we need that and we don't need to think about it or be inspired by it. We need to experience it. And so the reality is the sermon is just a breadcrumb to get people to say, like, come and see, like, you know, do put the Lord your God to the test and say, can dead things still come alive again? And I, and I, anyway, so I, yes, I I'm with you that like the hardest thing about, Easter and Christmas is just not psyching yourself out and not making your role more than it is in your own mind that like whatever I mean either Jesus is risen in which case nothing we say matters or Jesus isn't risen in which case nothing we say matters so I'm gonna simmer down which is easy to say on a Tuesday as we do this podcast. Well, on the walk, we were talking about the need to preach the resurrection in such a way that people did not see it as something only in the past, mm-hmm. right? Having no effect upon right now. and um, Only in the past or only in the future. Correct. Like that's yes, the challenge. Yes, yeah. yes. So and it's not There is resurrection power now. Yeah. So yes. But yeah, now I don't, I don't want you giving any more sermon spoilers because okay yeah because i was about to give give a big sermon spoiler shut your mouth (laughs) shut your mouth that is not what we need um so what are you thinking about well i feel like um we should do a little bit of um reverential public theology perhaps um okay i am scared no i mean we we don't know what i'm talking about i well i just mean um so today so there's serious stuff there's, happening there's, in the world there's significant <laughs> yes significant things happening in the world um always but today the particularly significant thing that's supposed to be happening maybe already has is that the former president of the united states is going to be criminally indicted and i guess arrested um and then released on bail for um a, a charge that is uh um, I think allegedly related to a payment that he made to a woman with whom he allegedly had an affair during his first campaign for president uh, to so that she would not talk about that. Um, and, and the crime is not in having an affair and is not in giving this woman money. The, 
the crime is in um, whether or not it was properly uh, accounted. Like if he used if he used campaign money to do that and lied about it, then I mean there are particular and very specific laws surrounding um, how one can use money that one raises for campaign expenses. And so um, it is an extraordinary thing. I, I am sure, I, I imagine um, that there have been other presidents who knowingly or unknowingly have um, violated campaign finance law. Um, <clears throat> at, anyway, obviously, I mean, we're not talking to anyone who doesn't have a strong opinion about the former president. Um, but the question is, as as the whole world talks about this moment, how, how do we talk about it as followers of Jesus? Um, and, and our friend, I mean, he's more your friend than mine, but I'd like, to, I'd like him to be my friend. Our mutual friend, Albert Moses, um, said, like, we should answer the question on the podcast, should Christians celebrate Trump's indictment? So, I mean, I don't know. Do you want to answer first or would you like me to answer first? <laughs> should we? Should we celebrate? My answer is yes and no. So, the no first. No because um, it is, it's like when a pastor is caught in misconduct. For me, he is one of us, not, not simply one of us as in pastors, but one of us as in uh, a, a follower of Jesus. Uh, not only that, a human being. And so there, there is, there's grief there. Um, so in, in that sense, um, no. Also, no in the sense of Christians should not be celebrating his indictment as partisans in politics. Mm -hmm. So um, for, for that reason, I say no. But there is a yes. There, there is a reason to celebrate. Because we say, we say, we say that in this country, no one is above the law. If that's true, the way it's going to be true is that we practice it. Mm -hmm. We practice no one truly being above the law. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, if a law has been broken, we are celebrating the um, the true equal treatment under the law, knowing that the reality is there are systems and laws that fall harder on poor people, mm -hmm. women, and people of color. Mm -hmm. That is the reality. So to see someone who is wealthy, powerful, male, white, be held accountable, there is a sense of, yes, there, there, there ought to be um, some celebration because it, it is a sign for those in the minority that we just might be 
moving toward a more perfect union? Yeah, I think I have I have a lot of complicated feelings. I think the most important thing is I think that the enemy of our souls is really effective at turning us away from Jesus by seducing us into um, practicing partisan politics. So I think it is not an expression of our faith in Jesus. Uh, we, our values in Jesus informs how we show up, do our civic duty in all kinds of ways. But, you know, aligning with a particular party in and of itself is not an, is not a factor of our um, faith in Jesus Christ. So by that, I mean, there are faithful ways to participate in the Republican Party. There are faithful ways to participate in the Democratic Party. There are faith unfaithful ways to participate in the Republican Party. There are unfaithful ways to participate in the Democratic Party. Um, and the political agenda that Jesus has for us, I think, is nonpartisan. Whether you are a Republican or a Democrat, you are supposed to be in favor of justice. Whether you are a Republican or a Democrat, if you are a follower of Jesus, you are supposed to believe in redemption and reconciliation and restoration. Um, you're supposed to believe in mercy. You're supposed to believe in protecting the most vulnerable. You're supposed to have a certain posture towards um, folks who are from other countries, particularly people who are uh, refugees. Um, and, and so, so, and those things are not partisan. Um, and so you can have a different idea about the most effective way practically to accomplish the agenda of Jesus, but the agenda of Jesus is the same. And it's not to humiliate and destroy your enemies. It's just not. Um, but you can definitely disagree um, faithfully about whether or not a big government or a small government or local control or limited, I mean, all of that, 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 you know, that's not a, um, that's not in itself a moral framework. Um, what I, but I do think that the, the, the devil has convinced a lot of Christians that, you know, your job as a follower of Jesus is either to be a Democrat or either, or to be a Republican. And that's it. And once you've aligned. And that is your primary identity. Right. And that's your primary expression of faith in Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so that, you know, that's deeply problematic because enemy love and self-giving service are the, are the, I mean, riding a donkey in, in, in a world full of leaders on war horses. That's our primary identification as Je as Jesus followers. So I think just understanding that partisan politics um, are not are not the hope of the world. Now, that's not an excuse to disengage. It's not an excuse to turn a blind eye to injustice. It's not an excuse to close our ears to the to those who are crying out in danger and say like well my hope's not in this world so y'all good luck i'll see you in heaven like right. that's it's not an excuse to disengage but it is to understand that the the only the transformative force at work in the world for christians is the resurrected jesus and so we engage in you know the broken institutions that we're a part of hoping not that the institutions in and of themselves will produce fruit, but that Jesus working through our imperfection and institutional imperfections will, will have his way. And, and so I think there's no place in, um, in the Christian's life for gloating or for glee over the suffering of others. Um, I, I, so I think it's really important for us to understand that everyone involved in the story is an actual real human being for whom Jesus died. It's 
really important to understand that um, the woman who received the payment from Trump should not be mocked and belittled and um, called a porn star, (laughs) you know, um, and I think if we really have been walking through Lent faithfully, then we should be at this moment, arriving at this moment with an extreme awareness of our own sinfulness and our own deep, deep need for mercy and reconciliation and redemption. And, and that should make us come to this moment, um, both brave enough to speak truth, even if it costs us friends and causes suffering, but also um, grounded enough in God's grace that we have hope for our enemies and we want, you know, what we, we honestly desire um, redemption and restoration for them. But, but I'm with you. I think um, that when God set a covenant out for the people of Israel, those in power were meant to use their power to protect the most vulnerable members of the community, not to protect themselves. And functionally, um, power structures generally tend to support the most powerful people in them. And and I've heard people be very dismissive of this particular um, indictment or the crime which Trump is accused of. And, and people will be very dismissive and say, well, it's just bookkeeping. And I think, you know, it, it's really important that when a powerless person commits a crime like stealing diapers from Walmart, we often have no one dismisses that and says, oh, it was just a $10 pack of diapers. But but when a wealthy person commits a crime, it's, you know, just bookkeeping. Like if the law um, matters, then um, everyone should be held to account to it equally. And I also think I'm not eager to see anyone humiliated in the process of arrest or indictment because I, I believe that it is a godly thing to have a posture of innocent until proven guilty. And that should apply to powerful people as well as well as powerless people. And so if people feel that it's a great indignity for a politician whom they revere to go through this process, then we ought to reform the process because every person who goes through this process um, ought to be treated as if A, they're innocent and B, as if their inherent human worth is non-negotiable. Um, but I, I do think like there's a part of me, a fearful part of me that just really worries about the chaos and hatred that this will unleash. And I think this is where you have to be courageous and not take any joy in it, but say whatever lies before us, um, the strength and mercy of God will be sufficient to see us through it. And um, we can't you know, we, we can't preserve the truth with, we can't preserve the false peace with lies. Yes. What irritates me about the situation and those like it is that the wealthy use the threat of chaos. If something happens to them to protect them from potential justice. Mm -hmm. And, and there is this impulse that the rest of us have to think, well, maybe we sh- maybe maybe we'll do more harm right. than good. 
But I, you know, I think it's really important. Um, but I do think it's a lie. I, I think I think the threat of unleashing chaos by doing the right thing is the lie we have to push back against. I mean, I think it. You know, I think it is not righteous. Um, I think it is a lie of the enemy. I'm I'm not certain that it won't happen, but I don't. I, I but agree. I still think you can't. You know, if if you have certain values, then you have to walk them out. Um, and so I, you know, I think it's always faithful for believers to say, to you know, count the cost and say what, um, you know, what what might unintentionally cause harm. But at the end of the day, you know, we 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 don't live. I I don't believe. I mean, the Lord didn't. Um, put humans in communities to have a king to have a, you know there's not supposed to be a one person who is set up and above and beyond all others like that's empire theology not kingdom of god theology um but it you know yes i think threatening to unleash chaos saying like my brutality and dominion and being above the law is the thing that makes peace like that's not only a lie it's a very old and familiar lie yes. and it's the same lie that like caesar made but i i mean i will say i'm praying a lot and i guess this is the last thing i want to say and i know we need to go i obviously huge proportions of the body of Christ have um, love for this man and hope for this man and this experience. They're very vulnerable. Um, I mean, I'm very vulnerable. We're all very vulnerable all the time, but I'm just saying like, I don't, I think it's really important that we recognize that we, um, that we have brothers and sisters in the church who I believe have been seduced by a lie and I believe are, um, are, are worshiping an idol, um, but they are still my brothers and sisters. And so what I want is for, for all of us is freedom. What I want for all of us is truth. What I want for all of us is righteousness. And, and, and I know that the, it will be painful. Um, and I don't, th there's no part of someone who follows Jesus who would rejoice in the pain. I mean, of a brother and sister, or even of an enemy like that. That's not, that's not who we are. So I think it's really important that we can have, um, conversations about this, but really understand that everyone we're talking about is a, is, is, is God's beloved and, and one day will be ours. And so to just have some reverence. And so, yeah. So we have to go. Um, thank you all so much for listening. Uh, if you want to find out more about what God is doing at God's Church, Derida Presbyterian Church, you can go to their website, which is www.derida.faith. Oh, I lost it again. You did. DeridaChurch.faithlifesites.com. You can check out their podcast on the Podbean website. You can go to their YouTube channel or you can join them for worship at 11 o'clock on this Resurrection Easter Sunday. Um, don't come for the show. and But there will be one. Um, but if you uh, want to find out more about what God is doing at God's Church, The Grove, you can go to our website, which is www.thegrovecharlotte.org. I don't know. Gosh, you've broken me. And check out our web podcast, which is the Grove Church Podcast, iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. You can go to our YouTube channel, the Grove Church, the Grove Charlotte. I don't know. Wait, look for what? the green tree. What's I have no happening? idea what's going on. But you can just come worship with us on Sunday at 10 a.m. 
Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. <laughs>